Well, good morning, everybody. While you're getting settled, I'm going to just say a couple introductory things about our our strategy on how we'll use this hour, not just today, this, this discipleship section, uh, but for the upcoming weeks. So the idea for the adults is that we're not quite as, uh, we don't have quite as high a retention rate as all the teens and the kids. So they get four weeks a month and we get three weeks a month uh, because we're not quite as high a retention rate the older we get. No, that's not the whole reason, Uh, but we do, for GROW, have sessions the first three Sundays of every month. This is the third Sunday, third session. So what will we do on the fourth Sunday next week? Well, the plan is to alternate months on the fourth Sunday from basically uh, unorganized fellowship time for you all have conversations with one another, uh, catch up with each other, encourage each other spiritually. Uh, that person you've been wanting to get together with and y'all have been, you know, hey, let's get together, let's get together, let's get together, text them uh, two days before next Sunday and say, hey, during that, that 30, 45 minute time, let's go sit on the playground at, at the bench and, and catch up with what we've been saying we're going to do forever. So that's the idea every other month. The fourth Sunday for the adults, just encourage each other in the Lord and uh, it's been a good time together. The fifth Sundays, you know, there's three or four of those a year. There happens to be one this month. There will be no classes for anybody, but it'll be, um, there'll be, you know, goodies during this time. But this month we do have a, a ministry presentation that's about 15 minutes that we want to put before you, and the rest of that time, um, there'll be some dialogue about that ministry presentation, but that's the idea on fourth Sundays and and fifth Sundays. All right, let's pray together. Father, once again, we're gathered in this session to think about something that is so important to you that you sent your son to be the remedy of the problem. It, it, could not, it could not be more consequential. The doctrine of sin, the reality of rebellion against our Creator. So as we think today about this sober theme, we do ask for biblical insight, understanding, But in today's session, as we're thinking especially practical applications, obedience, what does a right response look like in light of the biblical doctrine of sin? We pray for grace to obey. And we trust that you would love to provide such grace so that we can live in holiness and Christ-likeness and usefulness in your service. So that's, that's what we ask for. And I ask especially that any who are ensnared or trapped in any besetting sin, any foothold or stronghold of sin that's tangled around a brother or sister's life and heart, that this might be part of your good grace to help set us free, as Isaiah says, from those shackles. You break those chains and do it by the power and the grace of the risen Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. 
Okay, <clears throat> well, I've already said this is, um, you know, our core doctrine series is what we're doing. And I've mentioned that we do in three weeks every month, part one, part two, part three, biblical, historical, practical theology. So now we're on this uh, part three of practical theology. And the article in our elder affirmation that we're looking at, for those who are just getting caught up with us, is Article 5. We're doing the third part of Article 5, which should say practical theology. So that's, uh, I didn't update it from last week. So Article 5, Part 3, should say practical theology. In the article, the affirmation is man's sin and fall from fellowship with God. Well, we'll read it once again. You can follow along as I read. We believe that although God created man morally upright, he was led astray from God's word and wisdom by the subtlety of Satan's deceit and chose to take what was forbidden and thus declare his independence from, distrust for, and disobedience toward his all-good and gracious creator. Thus, our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original innocence and communion with God. There's a point two and a point three. Point two, we believe that as the head of the human race, Adam's fall became the fall of all his posterity in such a way that corruption, guilt, death, and condemnation belong properly to every person. All persons are thus corrupt by nature, enslaved to sin, and morally unable to delight in God and overcome their own proud preference for the fleeting pleasures of self-rule. And then finally, point three, we believe that God has subjected the creation to futility and the entire human family is made justly liable to untold miseries of sickness, decay, calamity, and loss. Thus, all the adversity and suffering in the world is an echo and a witness of the exceedingly great evil of moral depravity in the heart of mankind, and every new day of life is a God-given merciful reprieve from imminent judgment pointing to repentance. So I'll do my best to follow along with my cursor. I I see, see it sometimes and not others. But I mentioned today we want to talk about biblical applications that flow out of a biblical hamartiology. So if you weren't here the last two weeks, that's just the Greek word hamartia for sin. So hamartiology is the doctrine of sin, like theology, theos is the word for God. Theology is the doctrine of God and anthropos, man, anthropology is the doctrine of man. So hamartiology is the doctrine of sin. And we want to talk about practical applications, but even before I do, uh, I want to say why we're doing this with every doctrine that we look at. Theology is designed to lead to doxology. What we know about God is intended to be inextricably linked to proper worship of God. So if theology doesn't lead to doxology, it's only made it to your head and not your heart. So we're talking practical applications, meaning worship. What does it look like to honor the God who says these things are true? And there are four applications I want to look at. There are certainly more we could draw out biblically, but they are these. How you walk, with whom you walk, where you walk, and how you war, how you make war. 
We'll take them one at a time. First, how you walk. And you may be familiar with this replete biblical theme of walking. It means living, you know, how you do life, uh, how, how you walk. One example, Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we all too formerly lived. That's what he means by walk. Among them, we all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So if we have a biblical doctrine of sin, and we're seeking the Spirit's help to respond appropriately, it's going to inform how, how we live, how we, how we walk. Ephesians 5 carries on that same theme. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. When you know that sin knows no bounds, it will inform wisdom in our walk, knowing that all the days, all the times, all the places, all the people are contaminated and we are not exempt ourselves. So how we walk. One more, 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Keep walking faithfully. And if you look at 1 Thessalonians, this is the first verse of chapter 4, but what had come just immediately prior is this glorious uh, explication, rejoicing in the gospel and how God overcame our sin. Paul even says in 1 Thessalonians 1, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. You turn from sin to serve God. Well, this is what it looks like, how you actually walk. The doctrine of sin will lead to a, to a turning from it. That's, that's how we walk. But I want to turn also to the with whom, because you can't fight sin successfully, ongoingly, by yourself. And the old uh, illustration of the two people trying to pull one another, one standing in a chair, one standing on the floor, and you're both tugging at each other. Well, the person in the chair is going to come down, even if they're much larger and stronger, oftentimes being pulled by a much smaller and weaker person on the ground because of gravity. And if you walk in the company of people who love their sin, uh, we're just fools to think that we're not going to get sucked in to their trappings. So with whom we walk, Hebrews 3 is... You guys know my love of Hebrews, but this particular passage is one of my all-time favorite church verses. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Well, there's a lot going on in there, and we preached a few sermons trying to unpack it way back when. But notice that the 
any one of you, verse 12, and the encourage one another, verse 13, every single day has, I believe, dual meaning, dual, dual purpose, the yellow part. So here's the question about the yellow part. Does it mean encourage each other so that they will not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness? Or does it mean encourage one another as preventative maintenance for your own heart so that you will not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness? I think the answer is yes. Together in community with whom you walk, everybody encouraging each other, don't fall away from the living God. That's evil. That's what God says is the definition of evil. Not believing God, falling away from Him. Well, how can we prevent against that? I prevent against that by encouraging you and I'm prevented against that by you encouraging me and vice versa. And I love 14, we've all become partakers of Christ. So really the encouragement is pushing each other up into Christ. That's with whom you walk. Similarly, you guys are familiar with the first psalm. It's been said there's 150 psalms. 149 of them are prayers. One of them is not the first one. The first one is a picture of what the remaining 149 look like. And the first psalm opens with these words. How blessed is the man who does not walk, and you see a threefold digression, in the counsel of the wicked. So you're not walking in that. You're not standing in the path of sinners. And you're not sitting in the seat of scoffers. So people indwelt by the Spirit of Christ do not isolate themselves from a lost world, but their closest companions are people who are trying to walk with Jesus because they know sin is deceitful, it's tricky, the devil is a master disguiser, masquerading as an angel of light. Even demons believe in the one true God and tremble, so we know that sin is deceitful, so we don't make our most close companions people who are not fighting sin. That's with whom we walk. One more passage on with whom. This is 2 Timothy 3. Feels like it was written this morning. But realize this, that in the last days, let's do that. In the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Don't walk with people like that. Distance yourself from people like that. They live in their sin and they love it. And if you get close, you're a fool to think you're not going to get sucked into it. So, where you walk, uh, I'm sorry, how you walk and with whom you walk. You guys are familiar with Paul's admonition to the Corinthians, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. So, the with whom. So, we've looked at two of them, how you walk, that's how you live, with whom you live, 
with whom you walk. And let's, let's talk about the where, where you walk. Ephesians 5, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. That's a where and a what, but instead even expose them for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. That's the who. So these places, these are like caverns of darkness. Don't participate in that. And, and those people are ashamed, uh, the passage says, even of the things they do. It, it's, it's shameful, disgraceful, even to talk about the things they do in secret. You can't submerge your life in sinful escapade places and not be tainted. That's impossible. First John 1, this is a where. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, that's the triune God of verse 4 and 5, the God, verse 5, who is light in whom there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So a doctrine of God, His holiness, and a doctrine of sin, darkness, informs where our feet take us, with whom we fellowship, and, and what we do, where we go. Verse 11 of First John 2, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And it's not only geographic location, it's a, it's a spirit of somebody's heart. This is a person who doesn't take seriously the biblical doctrine of sin. All right, I want to go to the fourth because I have a bonus one that I want to especially emphasize so how, with whom, where, but there's also an offensive, you have to fight, you have to fight. You know, so I could pause and just say, are you, are you battling against sin? That's pretty familiar contemporary Christian-y terminology. I'm struggling with X, Y, Z. Well, are you are you struggling? Are you fighting against it? Or are you using fight words like struggle, but you're not really fighting? Are you making war against sin? Romans 8 has a lot to say to us about this. The mind that is set on the flesh is fighting. It's just fighting an impossible to defeat opponent. Fighting God. The mind that is set on the flesh, it's a carnal nature, sin, and all that it entails, is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And it is possible for regenerate people to be in the flesh, to operate fleshly, not lose your salvation, but succumb to the old man. That flesh, you know what it's like. And so Rick says every morning you need a crucifixion and a coronation. Snipe. <laughs> he says, snipe the old man, crucify the old man every day, and coronate, crown king, crown Christ as king every day. Because those who are in the flesh, old man cannot please God. Romans 8 also talks about fighting this way. 
making war against sin. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are, this is ongoing, putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You're not just acquiescing to your flesh. Sin nature. We all know in the doctrine of sin, we're not getting rid of our depravity until we meet Jesus in glory. We're, we're in that between, in Christ, last Sunday sermon, soon to be with Christ. But in the in Christ season, from conversion to our death, we don't have to give in to the old man. In fact, we're to kill him. We're to fight him. Put to death the deeds of the body. And we'll live. This is, I think, the hallmark chapter on how to make war, Romans 6. I'll draw out just a few passages, I think three from Romans 6. Even so, verse 11, consider yourselves to be, and I put one asterisk, two asterisk, three asterisk, four asterisk. That's what you're supposed to do. Even so, oh, I don't know what happened. Let's see. Ah, no way, no way, there we go. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, number two, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Number three, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. I've underlined that twice, so I'll come back to it. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Number four, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. This word members is parts. The, the whole of you is comprised of parts. So the old hymn, uh, take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee, just walk straight through the human body. Uh, take my feet and let them take me to places that glorify you, God. That's the song, uh, take my life. Take my lips and let them sing always only for my king. Take my heart, it is thine own, let it be thy royal throne. Take my wealth, uh, something, something, not a might would I withhold. It's just literally the whole body. That's what Romans 6 is about. The parts of you being consecrated to Christ. That's how you make war. You reckon yourself, you consider, verse 11, yourself to be dead to sin. It is true. You reckon it to be true. That's a daily ongoing, please help me, Holy Spirit, not succumb to the dominance of sin. Verse 12, don't let it reign in me. I'm not going to give my eyes or my mind or my body, verse 13, to sin. In verse 14, I have a new master, the all-gracious king. So in, I'm going to leave this passage up there and read a few comments from Leon Morris's commentary to Roman, uh, on Romans. It, concerning verse 11... This is the first use in Romans of being in Christ. You see at the end of verse 11, alive to God in Christ Jesus. One of Paul's favorite themes, he's waited six and a half chapters to bring it out. Verse 11 is the first time in Romans, Paul talks about this in Christness of believers. This is also 
Romans 6.11, the first exhortation in the entire epistle. Six and a half chapters, no exhortations. This is the first one. So he's laid out his doctrine of sin. He's laid out his doctrine of justification. Now he's giving an exhortation. So on the indicatives, what God has done for us in Christ, we start to get imperatives, what we must do. Or what I said earlier, our theology must lead to doxology, worship. So this is the first imperative, uh, the first exhortation in the epistle. Morris writes, Paul has laid a strong foundation in doctrine and in the recital of what God has done before he turns to the importance of right conduct. The present tense, Romans 6, 11 to 14, uh, the present tense points to a continuing process. This goes on throughout the Christian life. The believer is to take seriously his death with Christ, that's Romans 6, 8, and Christ's death to sin, that's Romans 6, 10. Since Christ died to sin, and since the believer is dead with Christ, the believer is dead to sin and is, re- is to recognize the fact of that death. This does not mean that he is immune to sinning. Paul does not say that sin is dead, but that the believer is to count himself as dead to it. He feels temptation, and sometimes he sins. But the sin of the unbeliever is the natural consequence of the fact that he is a slave to sin, where the sin of the believer is quite out of character. He has been set free. Paul tells him, Morris concludes, Paul tells him that he is to recognize that where sin is concerned, he is among the dead. He has been delivered from its dominion. Death is permanent. Once united to Christ, he must count himself as dead to the reign of sin forever. He is to reckon also that he is alive to God. His life now has a positive orientation. It is directed to the highest there to the highest there is the service of God. The Christian way is not just an emotional experience, though of course emotions are involved. It is a life of service, reckoning ourselves alive to God in Christ. So I want to read one other quote, uh, two quotes, but I thought it'd be helpful to put them up there for you guys to see if it's not too small. Uh, This is from uh, Robert Mounts' commentary on, on Romans. We are no longer to place any part of our bodies at the disposal of sin to be used as an instrument of unrighteousness. Paul was saying, don't let sin take command of any part of your body and use it as a weapon for evil purposes. Instead, we are to present ourselves to God once for all as those who have been brought from death to life, alive with Christ. We are now to put ourselves at the disposal of God. Our bodies are to be devoted to Him as instruments of righteousness. We are faced with the tremendous alternative, writes Barclay, of making ourselves weapons in the hand of God or weapons in the hand of sin. And and there are not not three options. There there are two options. I mentioned I wanted to look at two other portions of Romans 6. We'll do that briefly. That's my, I have three minutes to stop talking at you. Alarm. Romans 6, 19, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented the member, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness 
resulting in sanctification. Remember the members idea from earlier? It's all the parts of you. You used to give every part of you to lawlessness. And it had a consequence. Sin begets sin. Well, now do the same thing because you're alive to God in Christ. Give all yourself to, to God, slaves of righteousness, and that will have a consequence. More sanctification. And then verses 20 to 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let your eyes fall on verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. I would have expected him to say eternal life, but he put something in the middle. What's the benefit? What's the blessedness of being God's slave? The benefit you get is you get to become more like Christ. You get sanctification. The outcome of that is eternal life, which is what Hebrews means. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Sanctification is the evidence that we've been justified. That's what verse 22 is about. Well, I can't leave you without hope because some of us, as I prayed earlier, might be ensnared in sin and you're not making war how you walk with whom you walk where you walk how you fight it maybe is not these things so I want to give you four passages for help I don't have any more slides just these references these are gospel applications for guilty sinners the difference between Christianity and every other religious construct is we have a fixed point of redemption. You can be forgiven right now. It's a fixed, objective, God-made-it-so place of forgiveness, cleansing, reconciliation. So Psalm 51, you guys know, is David's confession of his sin. 1 John 1, 9 through 2, 2, that's just three verses, is one of the greatest, I highly recommend every Christian memorize. It's a, yep, that's me, God, and here I am. It's Jordan again. I'm back. But God wrote it. And God tells us in verse 2 of 1 John 2, if anybody sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus is standing ready for anybody to come and say, I'm guilty. Again. Again, Lord. Romans 2 tells us God's kindness leads to repentance. So the reason God hadn't just smashed us for our sin, He's being kind. He's actually benevolent. He's loving because He wants to woo you back, not with heavy-handedness, but with grace. So you'll know his, his, his heart. And in 1 Timothy 1, Paul didn't say past tense. He said present tense. This is long after his conversion. I am the chief of sinners. But that's exactly the people that Christ Jesus came into the world to save. 
That's 1 Timothy 1.15. So those passages will be a start for people who want freedom from the tyranny of sin. And they're all about the cross and the grace of Christ. So that was our third part of Article 5. And that concludes what we'll think about for this doctrine. We have five minutes for some interaction or comments, some clarifications. If you would like to make an addition, that would be very appropriate. So they may have a comment, question, or addition that you would like to make concerning this, this thought. PT, wait for the mic. Thank you. Yep, uh, just going to remind everybody that that was here and inform everybody that was not here that uh, Pastor Brian and Pastor Nathan preached through Romans chapter 6, 8, 10 years ago. Been a minute. Been a while. But the sermon series was fantastic, great help to me at the time. I, I tried to memorize Romans 6 at the time when they was mm. preaching through it, but it was if it's still on the website, I'm sure it is. You can go back and look it up too. Good word. Somebody else? I think we need to cue the uh, Jeopardy theme music every week during this time. Were you going to add or ask something yourself, brother? No? Okay, Chris Dunaway, way, way in the back. Just a question. How would you encourage us or what would you point us to um, when we sin? Obviously, we know this would be something that we could sit under until Christ comes. This would be an ever-growing process for us, but... Where would you point us to if, you know, th- there's a difference between sin and being, like, centered in it as opposed to God-centered in the sin um, and making that turn um, because our sin is an affront to a holy God who cannot look upon sin as opposed to there is a self-condemnation to it with us as well, but how do you turn that, that corner and see that sin is, um, you know, it's ultimately before a holy, holy, holy God. I missed the, the core part of the question, not because the way you were saying it, but the echo. Can you just try to say it? So, again? yeah, so when sin as being a sin, like self-centered, like, oh, I failed again, I failed again, as opposed to um, God is holy and mm-hmm. we are sinning against the holy God. Can somebody relay it to me? You're saying it crystal clear, but I'm, uh, my family will vouch uh, for me. I can't hear. <laughs> so, <laughs> when you sin, you can either be broken about it in a self-centered way, yeah. like, oh, I failed. Yeah, yeah. Or you can be God's holy, I sin against the yeah. holy God. So yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's good. You know, uh, one, thank you, brother, for the question. And if that's an accurate relay race, uh, I'll, I'll mention one verse that comes to mind that you guys are all familiar with. Third, so that's one way we can evaluate, assess our repentance. We don't need to get so navel-gazing that we're all up in our own head about whether or not we're doing something for God or for ourselves. It's not subjective, it's very objective. So repentance that is me-word, me-occupied, is not repentance. The verse that comes to mind is when Paul exhorted in the book of Acts, I think in the city of Ephesus, repentance to 
toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. So, if it's not a Godward gaze in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, somebody could dial up that reference, that would be helpful. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the verse says, but I don't know the reference. That to me is a beautiful descriptor of real repentance. It's it matters. So it's not ourselves. So that's why worship God. You're strong. life of Christ, power of the Holy Spirit, to walk in a way that honors you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.